sound design. I think every company has some sort of R&D. So in yourself, you should have some sort of R&D. You should be ready for some sort of revolutionary tech or something that could radically change the way that you work. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the founder of Audio Fusion, virtual training simulations for audio education, Sam Fisher. Sam, welcome to Sound Design Live. Thank you, Nathan. It's great to be here. So Sam, I definitely want to talk to you about these cool virtual studio environments that you've created. But before I do that, let's say that you are working in a studio or some other space for the first time and you want to get familiar with the setup, the sound system, the room. What's one of the first tracks that you're going to play to try and help yourself get familiar with it? I like to play drums. I think the drums has a nice dynamic range. It kind of creates a rhythm. There's a groove. There's a lot of energy that comes with with percussive instruments. So I'd like to pump that through the speakers if I get the chance. Any particular drum recordings that you like? I'm a big Mike Portnoy fan. A lot of his stuff is fantastic. Dream Theater. So Sam, how'd you get your first job in audio? Like what was your first paying gig? My first paying gig was doing sound design for a video game. It was an Android app called Jumpy the Frog. And it was... (laughs) (laughs) Wait, can I still play this? You'd have to check. Uh, I know that they talked about doing iOS. I don't believe they've ever got around to it. And I'm sure with updates, I mean, there might be a way to wrangle it out. It was super fun. It was just a vertical scrolling game. There would be a frog that's just constantly jumping and climbing up higher into the sky. And the developer really wanted a a Super Mario kind of sounding song. And I just, coming right out of school, I was already just super fresh with my my editing chops. And I did some some minor composing there and also the the voice effects. So that was really fun. There was a whole Uh range of stuff happening in that project. That was a lot of fun. And this isn't Jumpy Frogs. It's called Jumpy the Frog. Jumpy the Frog. Okay, I see there's a children's book called Jumpy the Frog definitely in that category okay cool well oh maybe you could if you do you still have any of the original assets it'd be cool to like put a few of the sound effects in here yes uh let's see i don't know if the sound effects are there let's see if i could find it for you really quick because i know i had i don't have anything that i did that that long ago so i'd be surprised if you did okay i see (laughs) i see their logo here let's see if the video i mean because i did if you search the video here there's jumpy the frog the main theme song How did you get the job? Let's see. I got this job from really just posting around and just wanted to find gigs. When you're coming out of school, you're looking for opportunity. You're posting your CV everywhere. And that's really how you really started out. I mean, there was indeed that was pretty popular at the time, but I pretty much went from that straight into the development. So that was like a coming out of school project. Nice. And I, I just wondering, did, uh, did that turn into more work for you in the future? I, I don't think you do a lot of that kind of work anymore, but is that the kind of work where you do one thing and you do it well and you just like keep doing it? 
Well, it's interesting because, again, like I, I would separate the component of who's making the music and who's doing the sound implementation. That's how it tends to be when you're in the game development pipeline. But in this case... Right, there's normally like your more technical side and your more creative side. Exactly. So the coders okay. are really doing it. They'll have a basic understanding, but they really just want to have a, a sound file to play back that's at a certain size that's not really taking up so much because they're also trying to minimize their download size. It's, it's important for, for people. Right. Just, just send, me, send me, the me the assets that meet these technical requirements. Exactly. Deliverables, okay. right? Just a different right. deliverable we, than we might be used to. And again, working with the developer and understanding the formats, I was already interested in coding at the time, so I was doing the job, but learning so much about what's involved in the process and working on my own project on the same time, or at least starting to be inspired to do it. Oh, interesting. So yeah, this is connected with the work that you do now with Audio Fusion. Exactly. So it's, it's a lot of the same research and understanding why that might be, why it might work better on this platform or why it might work with their framework, framework better. And framework, I mean, what the coders might be using to make the environment. When you're working on Android, Android has their own software development kit. iOS has their own software development kit. And there are a lot of third-party developers who will make their own frameworks. And I'm sure people have heard of Unity and Unreal. Well, there are even smaller brands that have done it. And their frameworks can also be very technical. And as a sound person, to be able to just read their technical spec, you can understand why one format of exporting might be more optimized than another. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this because I know there are a lot of sound engineers like myself at home right now, not working on shows and kind of wondering like what other things can I use my audio skills to get into and working on games or creating my own games or working on software is one of those things. So I've actually been getting into some software development and and working on some web apps. So what, first of all, what could people be looking at if they want to maybe just do some sound design for software in terms of like creating these deliverables and assets. How could they get started with that? And secondly, if people wanted to maybe look at learning some coding to create their own projects, what could they look at? I know that's like a big open general question, but maybe just from your own personal experience, how did it work out for you in terms of getting started? I really love that question. And for it, it starts at a different place for everyone. I, I was reading a book about coding at the time and it just kind of gave me the a really technical understanding. I'd already made the game or made the sound for this game, which was more just make the assets, make it exported in their format. And it was, I guess that's, that's the entry level of doing sound for games, right? You're going to be working on sounds the way you normally would in an environment, but the way you deliver it to your, your developer is going to impact how they could really, again, it goes, it falls into optimization. If you want to know how to implement it yourself, at any level, okay? So there's just get it to playback based on certain variables in the application or the environment. That's that's really fun. So footstep sounds are so great because, right, you can make one footstep sound and you could pitch shift it every time it's played and it will sound like multiple effects and you could control the volume so that you're kind of creating this non-linear playback, but it's only one sound. Otherwise, if you make seven sounds that's still going to add up. And if you have seven sounds for everything, it starts to add up. But in this case, you're going to be doing some really just, it's, it's not just based on playback. It's, it's based on the variables and some basic effects that you can apply to it. Okay. Sorry. I was going to say that at a more advanced level, you can get into like coding synthesis, which is math and science. And it's so much fun. If you ever get to that level, that's, that's, I mean, that's, 
it never ends. I mean, you could be doing it your whole life. That's what people are doing in the industry. It's, it's fantastic. I haven't done it, but I've looked into a little bit about working on games. And from the little advice that I've heard is that there are lots and lots of people out there who are also just starting out and like doing their first independent project. And they are also looking for people to collaborate with. So there are lots of places out there that are trying to help people get connected and and use these opportunities. So there are, you know, game producers and and independent people out there producing projects who, who need audio people to do this stuff. And, you know, most of those gigs starting out are probably going to be unpaid, but that's where you get the experience. Definitely. I'll tell you from once I started working on my projects, I obviously wanted to network and do the entrepreneurial thing, but I came across a lot of game developers. And if I was more focused on game sound, I would be just having more of these jumpy frog games on my, under my belt. (laughs) What I learned from doing this project, I've given away for free advice to developers who obviously feel confident they could play back sounds very easily. They could download free sound effects, but do they know how to optimize their app so that they can reduce their file size? That was something I was able to just say, Hey, you know, if you do this, you're actually going to cut everything in half. If you, if you make a loop of drums and four bars and you have different melodies that you just introduced based on a variable in the scene, maybe it's a boss level. Maybe it's the second phase of the boss getting beaten, right? If the boss is half health left, music should get a little bit more intense. It should really be just one loop added back on top rather than just a long timeline of of music. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's less about uh, just recording another piece of music and and how to optimize it to deliver that stuff so that it all works. That's really interesting. Uh, So you could almost just have a job where you are a, you know, audio optimization expert for, for delivering on these platforms. Definitely, definitely. And being able to solve problems or implement something that could bring out more vibrance in the tech in the game or technology. There's so much you can do if you understand some of these nuances and how you could reduce, or I like to really use optimize, but it's overused, but optimize optimization is so big in, in, in development. So it comes with the territory. If you're doing audio, you have to consider what is optimization, what it might mean to different people in, 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 in the pipeline. Yeah. I'll just share a quick personal story, which is that it used to be, uh, so I delivered this podcast with SoundCloud and it used to be that SoundCloud would, it would basically stream whatever file you uploaded. So if you uploaded an uncompressed WAV file, that's what it would try to stream. And then recently they changed it so that you could upload an uncompressed file. And then, you know, based on whoever's listening to it, uh, it would then on the fly convert that into whatever, uh, you know, streaming file format would be most optimized for, you know, the listening experience. And that was great. So I started uploading all uncompressed podcasts and they, you know, could be really big, you know, hundreds of megabytes to SoundCloud. And then people started complaining because there are plenty of people who still download the file and listen to it later instead of just streaming it on a podcast platform. So then I had to go back to just uploading MP3s. So yeah, it just made me think about like considering like who are all the people that are going to be experiencing this down the line. And that's a lot of what software development is, it seems like to me, is that you are taking this one idea that if I were just delivering to you, Sam, right now, I could just like 
ask you all these questions and I know all about your life and like, okay, here's the file format that you need for your particular application. But if you're trying to do things at scale and making them for kind of anyone in the world, like then the number of variations of how someone might experience your work, then it's like hugely magnified. And I'm sure you've had to figure that out as well. So I just wanted to to share that story of how I've, I understand that a little bit with just delivering the podcast to people. So I'm sure the complexity expands, you know, even more with um, the kind of like software and games. It's, it's so complex and you, you wouldn't think it, but the smallest micro detail can impact the entire operation on an audio. We're a little bit, it's a little bit less pressure for us, but as it gets more technical, it really, there, there, there's a lot to consider. And I'll, I guess I'll share one more point about that because we were talking about the loop of the boss, right? We're, we're just trying to play back some very basic four-bar loop. It's going to just be the kick drum for a second, right? We're walking into the room with the boss, and we're hearing the kick drum. It's just four bars playing over and over. It's not seven minutes of audio. It's this one tiny loop that's just seamlessly playing back, keyword seamless, meaning that the waveforms are just matching at the, the zero cross points so that when it loops over, it doesn't sound like it's cut out or interrupted. So by that, you feel convinced the music is just playing. And then as you maybe spend after you pass four bars, again, this is coded. This isn't going to be on a timeline like Ableton or Pro Tools. It's coded that this audio file is playing, and when it ends, it should just start over. And you count how many times you're starting over. This is in code. So again, as an audio person, you don't have to worry about it. But how do you communicate to the developer, hey, if you do this, we'll reduce the audio file size together. It's the communication and it's the way that we could collaborate. And by that, two small four-bar loops can be done in so many variations. You could pitch shift at one point. If you're losing, you could pitch shift up, you can pitch shift down, but it's the same four bars and the experience could just be endless. Well, Sam, I'm sure a lot of things have happened since Jumpy the Frog and then now Audio Fusion. So I was wondering if you could sort of zoom into on a point in your career where something changed for you. I found that a lot of people that I talk to have some point where they decide, you know what, I really know what I want to do now, or I know where I need to go. And you take like a hard left turn or you say, you know what, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. So I'm wondering if there's some place that you can take us to. So looking back on your career so far, what's one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? For, for me, a lot of it happened towards the end of the university when I had this Jumpy the Frog game and I was transitioning and, and thinking about my own development and starting to experiment with different ways of working in audio, right? So some of this own, the sound implementation inspired me to really take my work seriously. I wanted to make a compressor plugin, but I was like, why make a new compressor plugin for AAX? Why not kind of go along and simulate the whole mixer and studio experience? But so that already happened. I had the idea of the prototype. It was great. But going to my first convention, being on the floor and meeting people in the industry changed everything. And it continues to change things. And oh, wow. Really just showing up. Wait, what does that mean? You went to your first convention and you had a booth or you were just meeting people there? You're just an attendee. Uh, Good question. I was actually just an attendee with my laptop, just showing my project off to anybody I could (laughs) right out of college. Oh, really? So you're just walking up to people and you say, hey, you want to see something? (laughs) (laughs) To some some degree, some some contacts I made ahead of time and I was able to have meetings. It was at a really small scale. But at any point, I was just, I would meet these people who were console manufacturers and I just wanted to kind of get their feedback on where I was this idea at all any valuable. I wasn't even looking for a job. I was more just 
what is what do you think of this is there potential can we solve this problem for for a lot of people uh so i guess it's worth mentioning my project we're simulating sound spaces for virtual edu- for virtual training and education by providing simulations of hardware where people could experiment what it might be to work on a mixer, whether small format or large, work with patch bays, work with external devices and the way that all that signal works together and signal flow. And from here, I was just really passionate about it because I had done that myself. I was that person who was struggling to have access, and I just wanted to know as much as possible about the hardware and to be able to understand. This was more my art, right? Like I wanted to understand sound engineering as much as possible, just like I wanted to understand all these different variables inside of sound implementation for games. So from from really just showing up and just having this strong emotion about doing it, seeing, getting some feedback, having that reflected back, I mean, made me realize I wanted to do it. And there was just a lot for me to learn. And I'm, and I'm really glad I did it. Wow, cool. And, you know, I think everyone can relate to this, especially now when lots of people are sort of looking for other opportunities. Um, what can we be doing while we don't have live shows that, that maybe six to... 12 months off for us right now. And we're all sort of selling ourselves in one way or another. You know, a lot of us don't like to think that that's what we need to do. Like I just do work and then people like it and then they hire me again. But in some way or another, we're either pitching to people our services and saying like, hey, I can help you solve a painful problem. And or, you know, I'm I'm working on this piece of software that helps you solve a problem. So I'm really impressed that you just were kind of cold calling people like, you know, face to face. And that makes it a lot easier. But I think you've probably had to do a lot of that because as you and I both know, you know, trying to like get something new off the ground is a lot of work. And unless you have the cure to cancer, like people are not calling you up saying like, Hey, Sam, I heard you have this new software project. Please, please, please. Can I give you all my money? Like, you know, that that's not normally happening. You're really having to tell a lot of people before you get to like a tipping point, maybe where the thing sort of takes on a life of its own. And, and talking to a lot of people about these kinds of projects, it seems like that is is actually really common. It's way less common, these stories that you hear where someone just comes up with an idea and then like a month later, they have a whole business around it, you know? And that's why, you know, people starting out in audio realize that, you know, it's really the, the people who are successful in audio are really the people who stick around the longest, right? So sorry, I'm like turning in, this into a monologue, but I'm just impressed with your story of like, you know, uh, how do I get this started? I guess I'll go to this conference and try to talk to as many people as possible. So tell, tell me a little bit more about that experience. Like, how were you approaching people and what were you saying to sort of like get them into a conversation? So there's, there's something to separate here. There's cold calling where you show up face to face. And then there's cold calling when you actually call them on the phone or send them emails, two different phases for me. At first, I guess I really just wanted to share the experience and get that feedback. And I knew that people would be there. And I had gone to an AES convention the year before, and I kind of already had that glow and realized that that's where I could meet people. That's where I can network at the, at the next phase, I guess, it's realizing you're an entrepreneur. I did not know what that was, even at the convention, on the floor. People might have even said it to me, and I, it just was a term that flew through my head. So when someone told me to watch Shark Tank, that's when I realized what an entrepreneur was, about a year and a half <laughs> into this thing. And I'm like, all right, that's the question. They want to know if I'm this and that. I'm like, I just want to know if this is going to help solve a problem. Let's let's verify it, I guess. And on the 
tech terms, I guess I had an MVP at the time, right? The minimum viable product. It does what you want it to, and it proves a point. I was obsessive about it, so it was more or less done. A lot of things came down to optimization, right? So that's where it became a little bit more of a developer, was figuring out how to optimize the software more. But to be, bring it back to the entrepreneur thing, I had, I had to take on a lot more. Making a software, have, having an idea, making a software, and launching a software, one thing, and then actually getting it in front of people. Like you said, no one's calling you unless you have the cure to cancer. Well, in the beginning, it was very tough for the few interactions. There's a lot of discussion on analog and digital. Is it going away? I think there was some of the language I could have improved when sharing the product idea, rather that it be an understanding of signal flow and how to treat sound in different, in, in different scenarios. So in the first few in, in the first few years, it was more of me trying to figure out how to communicate with people. And I guess when fast forward to near where we are now, the pandemic had hit. I felt my pain point just globally amplified. It wasn't based on oh, let's try to do this and make us make us make a million dollars. I was it's, I just want people to be aware if they're dedicated and they want to be able to practice. This is a tool that's available to them. And I kicked up the outreach, the emailing, and I, people these days were a lot more susceptible to emailing and they're also more susceptible to the idea of, Hey, maybe we could be doing this virtually. And sure. that's, that's the cold call where I, I've been at the last few months, a lot of emails. Right. Do you want to talk about that for a second? I'm just because there may be people listening like me who want to know, like, how do I connect with people who might be interested in my idea, my business, my services, you know, without feeling sleazy. Because there's a lot of people who I think they don't reach out about their idea or their project because they don't want to annoy people. But the thing that you're making right now could really be helpful to someone. So yeah, would you mind just talking about like the nuts and bolts of reaching out to someone? Uh, I, I guess it's more like how you feel. The conference thing was like a great point. Like how do you really break break the ice and have that kind of conversation. You really just have to, you have to have your kind of language down. If you're, if you're, if you don't know how to, it's just like being, being a professional for the audio industry. You have to be able to articulate yourself to your client to understand so that they understand what value you're bringing. And a lot of it really comes down to how you break that ice. Now finding them, my way of originally finding them was going to these conventions. Sometimes it was, it was harder than it looked because there's a lot of time and commitment you got to take to go to a convention at this point. You really do, and in these days, I mean, you have the social media. It's, it's there's there's lots of ways of engaging with people. I think the second you have a product to sell and you ask for for some sort of verification on it, you're already a salesman. That's what I realized. Like I took a student project and I said, "Hey, can I help solve the problem for your students too?" And it wasn't really the same kind of student to educator conversation. It was more of a potential salesman type of person to a potential client. So I don't think that ever shakes off. You just have to be a little bit more comfortable in those boots. Okay, great. And I think your approach of just not saying, hey, can I sell this to you? But, hey, can you help me validate this? I like that approach. Any kind of conversation there is going to kind of be, it's going to feel that validating. But that's, I guess in emails, it's kind of a little bit easier, right? Because in emails, you don't have the, 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 the physical thing. It's more of, can you make that first? It's not like, it's similar to blocking, but you want to make your, point really early so that people understand what what it is that you're trying to get across to them mm-hmm. but otherwise if it's if it's going to be face to face and you're going to them as an attendee there's there's a lot of variables there too we didn't really mention i had exhibited at some of these shows i did the as and the nam 
Okay, so you like this so much, you're like, hey, next year I'm going to have a booth and meet even more people. Exactly. Like I did take, well, I wanted to understand what was happening in that space. So it was, it was definitely an investment around my, on my part. I'm happy I did it. A lot of the people that come to me now are people that just remember me from that show. So, you know, really? there's, okay. there's definitely some face value that's, that's, that's not to be taken for granted, but it was just wanting to understand the landscape. And I think when you're, when you're in, in the entrepreneurial state space, a lot of people tell you, you got to fail and fail fast and then try again. So I'm just trying new things. All right, Sam. So you make tools to help people learn mixing and signal flow, among others. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are starting down this path? I'm not sure. You know, I know you do a lot of demo calls with people. You you now see students using all this equipment for the first time. Could you talk about just like some of the most common things you see people doing wrong who, who are starting out? I think starting out, a lot of people feel like that just what they know inside of the, the DAW is enough to feel like a music producer or professional. And then you kind of put yourself in this area where you don't really understand where you're at in terms of like what you understand in audio. You're kind of overlapping with someone who might be a really experienced engineer. And then it just, you could be confused. You don't want that to happen to you, right? We're talking about language here and you can't take that for granted by any means. So what I, what I, what I mean to say here is, is that, when people start to learn audio at different levels, they have to be able to feel comfortable experimenting with new things. And I think the first thing I see is that there's a little resistance. I'm guilty of that. I think we've all kind of been guilty of that. And that's something that we're trying to solve through the product as well as just make it feel a little bit friendlier. Can we make it relatable so that people could explore the environment or not feel so attached to what they know inside of their digital audio workstations? Again, really early stage before all the hardware comes, before all the amps start getting set up, People have to understand something like Audacity, right, or GarageBand. And then we always have this comfort zone that we're trying to break out of that we're like, are we going to move up from GarageBand to Logic Pro? Like, that was such a huge step for me that first time. <laughs> and thankfully, they made the session switch to Logic Pro. So that was, like, really a, a selling point for me, right? So, like, again, our <laughs> idea of what professional was is I think that we're always kind of combating that. Now, getting hands-on. I think that people need to also, again, not feel like they're working inside of their workstations. They need to understand what's happening underneath and be able to feel comfortable troubleshooting, even just on the console itself. And a lot of that takes exploration. People want to mix a lot, so they're kind of doing what they feel great doing. But when you're you're trying to learn and you're trying to, at an educational level or professional level, you want to try to use your time with the hardware as efficiently and as effectively as possible so that you can absorb as much to take with you for the next time, especially if that's not a piece of gear that's yours. So you were asking me before about if I go into the studio, what kick would I play? I mean, the first thing I do is I want to understand how this whole place is wired, right? I want to understand what's going on in the ins and outs so I can feel more comfortable that I know what things I can do if I have different clients. In studios, and if you're an event owner, a venue owner, or if you're if you're working sound at a venue, there's a lot of different configurations you're going to have. So you have to always be comfortable again coming out of that box and just feeling comfortable with with the hardware in front of you in different in different scenarios. Patch bays are very scary. I think everybody yeah. says that <laughs> audio engineers, live engineers, it doesn't matter. It's really just ins and outs of the entire environment. So I mean. Try to try to think of that bully like a baby with with a pacifier in its mouth. And... <laughs> That's interesting. So I think we are getting more and more comfortable with 
tools that are kind of available at our fingertips, you know, like anything we can load onto our phone or our computer. But really, that's only part of the signal chain. And so if we were to start out, you know, at the beginning of the signal chain and, and go to the end, then we would, you know, spend a lot of time just learning about, you know, the source and, and how to make the source you know, how, how to be artistic with that and how to be technical with that. And then we look at how we're going to capture that source. And so you're making me realize that, yeah, p- people are probably becoming more familiar with what's in the computer, but then there's this whole huge area that's outside of that, that we really need to understand to then make what's in the, the work that we do in the computer actually work and be fun. Exactly. I mean, even to, so I guess a, a good, a good analogy might be here is gain staging and clipping. Sometimes a preamp might actually introduce a really nice sound if you give it a little bit of heat. You only really get that experience if, you, if you're experimenting with the hardware, but if you're not really aware and if you're a beginner and you're like, well, I saw myself clip here one time, maybe I could clip on this device too and it's going to sound good. No, it's not really. That's, that's two different grades of preamps that are clipping and you're not going to get the same kind of sound and the quality. And if you're clipping on a, on a, on a lower grade preamp, everything else down the chain is just not going to sound as good. You're just going to be losing things earlier on. So again, just that constant awareness and not something that's just totally digital. It's similar principles, but just with a little bit of a different, it's a different way to handle it. Sure. Well, Sam, we've been talking about this sort of in the abstract for a little while now, but I'd love it if you would give us like a, a 10 minute, demo just like a short demo of soundcheck pro because for people who haven't used it they're going to wonder like what does this look like what does it do and you know people should really download it and and play with it but we can kind of give people that experience now so this is an audio podcast that a lot of people are listening to but what i'll do with this next part is since Sam's going to be sharing his screen and sort of walking us through it, is I'll, I'll cut that part out and I'll put that on YouTube. So if you're listening to the podcast, go to sounddesignlive.com, search for Sam Fisher. There's a search bar at the bottom of every page on sounddesignlive.com. You'll come to the interview and on that interview page, I'll have a video here of Sam giving this demo for us. Fantastic. So uh, let's see. I got some privileges here. Great. I'm going to do my whole screen. I see it. Great. So this is Soundcheck Pro, and we have a series of mixers that we could work with inside of our session mode. There's some learning modules, so we can learn some basics of audio. We got the tutorials, okay, but let's for now we could just we're gonna try to explore really quickly a small mixer and, and jump to a second mixer that's gonna be a little larger just so we can feel the difference in between. Okay. I like to show the Yamuka mixer. It's got some very interesting signal flow points, and there's some parts of it that are different that you might not find on a lot of traditional mixers. But it is; these are points that you would see out in the field. So every console, ha- every mixing desk comes with a tutorial, and we could just learn a little bit more about the environment. So we have our console window. The pat, our we just work our way through here, but we want to get sound in, in, in and out of the environment as quick as possible. In this case, we're going to be going for the input game. The signal is going to come in through the mic input. We're going to go for the lower channel output. We can see meters showing signal coming in. Okay, and for the people that are just listening still, what Sam is doing is he's loaded basically a, a virtual 
tiny little audio mixer and he's actually playing audio through it so we can see the signal we can see the meters moving and he's making adjustments on the console and and Oh, and we're also listening to it as well. So you can really run audio through this stuff and, and make patch points and changes. Right. So there's a lot to consider here, but we call it we call it signal flow. Let's see if I can get this to work. I've been doing this a lot recently. But essentially the sound is coming in, going down the channel strip, and then it's going to work its way to the master output, right? But there's a little bit more to the board. There's a little effects button here, and that's actually going to send the signal up through the effects section here and come down here and then meet the signal back here. So there's a little tiny amount of signal flow involved here, which is really fun. I'm going to clear out and we're going to go over to, we're going to go over to another mixer really quick, just to get an idea of how different it feels to approach another mixer. And again, if we're too comfortable in one environment or with one piece of hardware, how are we going to feel when we get to another type of mixer? And we're talking about working with a client. So we want to get paid, we want to look good. We want them to tell their their other friends and their other contacts about us. Let's look at another mixer here. We're going to jump up to a 16 channel, calling this board the Maggie. It's a great beginner intermediate mixer. A lot of a lot of features here. But again, in Soundcheck Pro, every mixer will have a tutorial that comes with it. Here we go. So again, there's our mixer. Look how much bigger it is. There's a lot more going on. Mm-hmm. Now we're introducing the external rack, which we have our patch bay. We have audio effects up top. We have some other processors on the bottom, dynamics processing below. And all that can be configured in and out of the signal chain with the patch bay. Now this really reflects what you would see in a studio, this type of routing matrix. But really these are just the inputs and outputs of every environment. So you can configure this ahead of time and call it your your live performance if you want. It's really just your Mm -hmm. analog routing matrix. But again... We're going to be starting to run through this, run through the channel path, and the first we're going to have the input game. But look how many more knobs are involved here, right? There's a lot more that could be talked about. But when we want to get sound in and out of the mixer, we have to know what we're going for. This is our checklist for taking this plane off. So we're going for the fader. Now we have something different. We have a mix bus. This is actually now sending the channel out. So our levels are set, but we can take it in and out of what we'd be listening to. So now we're going to have it set. The signal is reaching the master fader. We could just turn that up a little bit just to verify that we have sound when we select the monitor source. This is actually what are we sending out to the speakers or what are we listening to. There's different sections of the of the mixer that we can observe. Our main mix we want to listen to is the master fader, so we assign it to the main mix. And lastly, we want to send that mix to the output, so we slowly bring that sound up and we can start to hear it. Now, Obviously, if we're working with a band, we're going to be doing this 10 times over, bringing up every microphone, every channel possible, and the show should be rocking within minutes, right? We want to feel comfortable when we do this, whether it's a mixer we've seen before or not seen before. Soundtrack Pro enables you to really kind of shed the skin and feel a little bit more comfortable when you get to the environment and know what you're going to do. Cool. Sam, I love that you can load a bunch of different mixers. You can really kind of test yourself and make sure that you're not getting too comfortable in any one area. And one feature that I was really surprised by is that not only can you load an audio track to play through a channel, but you can load a bunch of audio tracks. You could load a whole multi-track file and then play it back through all of these and basically do kind of a virtual sound check and do a virtual show. Like if you had a whole show recorded, for example, I suppose you could play that back through all these different channels and practice mixing a show in this virtual environment, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that we're exploring. My background was originally from the studio, so that's where we, we see that reflecting a lot in the application. But from a lot of the discussions we've had this summer was to explore how we can add some live features that promote that feeling and what we're going to be doing. Obviously, we have the multi-track, which is fantastic, but we want to bring out the visual a little bit. So we're going to, we're going to implement the video player. So if there's any video associated with the multi-track that you have, you could play that back on a separate screen or have it up in the corner and bring it, make it larger if you want, especially there's just so much more to look forward to on the live side. Cause we're just going to be exploring that. But to, to further express the visualization of working with live artists, we could actually designate microphones for the sources. They're just based on category for the educational side of it. Or we're saying, are right, these are dynamic mics? We might want to use a large condenser. So it's really there for the discussion right now. But again, all these features that just promote that feeling of working with the live in the, within the live space, we're going to mm-hmm. be seeing that a lot over the over the next few months. Um, any uh, other important features you want to share with us to to wrap this up? Yeah, sure. The best thing I would I would have probably demonstrated on the largest board, but what I want to make obvious is that when we're working with these environments, we don't, we're not just working on our mix, right? We're not just playing back a Pro Tools session and editing it and hitting spacebar every couple of seconds and then just kind of listening back to what we're doing. We're going to be making a mix that we're going to be hearing for ourselves. There's going to be a headphone mix for each artist, but there's going to be a mix that's playing out to the speakers. Now, on the more advanced boards, we could start to really introduce the cue mixes and using different configurations so that we could just really have more mixes to consider, and, and, and even if it was for deliverables. So I think, again, soundtrack is really different from your traditional DAW. I like to say that it's DAW agnostic, and we're not promoting mm-hmm. that traditional experience of we're working to just mix. We're working to, to be efficient, right? So what I'll just quickly demonstrate is, just, and I'll do it visually, but on this board, what's different is there's, a record bus and a mix bus. So not okay. only do we have to have the input gain and the fader, but now we have two buses. Now, why is that significant? Because we might have the drums, the bass, guitar, and vocal on channels one, two, three, four. Okay, we're just subgrouping it for now. But we could have the entire band on the record bus and then just the instruments on the mix bus, and you could record both those mixes at the same time in one pass. It could even be live. Right, so if, if you're if you're dealing with a three minute track, okay, you could record them individually if you want. If, uh, just even mixing it down, okay, we're, that's what we're really talking about here is mixing it down to the final deliverable, whether it's a CD recording or a live recording that's being made available for people to listen to on streaming. What's important here is that if you're dealing with a really large recording, you could record both those passes at the same time with a mixer like this, and you could also utilize the cue for another mix there's just so many more things that you can do is that in one pass you could have all these different levels set and there's just a little bit more intricacies on the more advanced boards but importantly we can monitor each of those paths so you could have four mixes happening at one pass so a half hour could equal what is that it's 160 minutes of music just in one single pass sure optimization efficiency (laughs) cool Thanks. And, and so for people watching this, if they want to download this and try it for themselves, which they should, they should go to audiofusion.com, right? Yeah, they should go to audiofusion.com. There's a registration link on the soundcheck page. And I want to, to let you guys know that I have a coupon code for specifically for you guys at Sound Design Live. 
if you want to take it, if you're listening, I'm, if you go to the website, I'm sure they'll be posted somewhere. Sure. We'll, we'll put it on the show notes for this podcast. And I guess below this video, where, wherever that ends up. Yeah. We, we don't want anybody to, to start texting and driving. Right. So <laughs> I'm going to just snapshot this and send this to you or if you, whatever you want to do there, but that will just in, introduce the education pricing for, for anybody. It, it's $40 for the year. That'll give you all access to all the five consoles we have now, anything that comes out within the next year. And trust me, there's a lot of boards on the way. We just put out two within the last month. Those were the oh cool right. So we really put out we put out the smaller boards because we want people to feel comfortable. And again, we want them to shed their skin. And one of the things I'm learning is that we're always kind of trying to make the language easier, right? So, all right, Sam. So you've made this really cool project this and and you've done jumpy the frog and you've done a lot of other cool projects since then but tell us about one time when work for you did not go so well so what's maybe one of the biggest and most painful mistakes that you've made on the job and and what happened after that well that's uh there's a lot that i guess i can consider there but i guess really just it would come mostly from the entrepreneurial side, I guess, there. But maybe it could be something that people relate to is just not really being sure of myself or being patient enough sometimes to just let something play out. Or did this person not respond to my email? Maybe they're just swamped, but I just would get so worked up in the beginning and, and I would just have unnecessary discouraged time where I wasn't being as effective as I could have. I think that's something that I'm always kind of challenging on is how do people think or perceive me? And I think... Uh, you have to be a little bit confident in the things you know and, and, and the value you can provide, but also be patient. Okay. Would you be willing to kind of tell us a story of how that happened? Yeah, sure. Pretty much the entire summer, everybody I was reaching out to who didn't get back to me and tell me that they wanted to use soundtrack <laughs> in the program. The worst summer of your life. <laughs> no, oh, it was man. the best. I really enjoyed I could. I'm just saying that sometimes I was like, wow, did these people just give up? Like, what happened? Were they not happy? And they're not telling me. And then sure enough, they're just, there's so much that are, that especially right now, there's just so much that's happening and you have to just sometimes just let something play out and just reiterate, like, don't let it be on sure. your mind so that you could do other things without being distracted, right? Because I, I mean, I have things I got to do. Everybody's got something they got to do. So to dwell on something that's really just, they just needed three days because they were on vacation or who knows what's happening in every school right now. Everybody seems to be making decisions on whether they're going to be campus or online at the last second. And uh, on that mm-hmm. note, I think that's been the hardest for the students, but whole nother discussion. Do there. you ever wish, do you ever wish you were like data from Star Trek and you could just disable your emotions chip? I've never seen when that. When it would be beneficial to you? I don't, I've never <laughs> seen that, but I could totally use that GIF right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, uh, what is a book that you can recommend that has been really helpful to you? Great question. So one book that really helped me in my career was Designing Audio Effects and Plugins in C++ by Will Perkle from the University of Miami. Somebody who I met going to an AES show, attending a talk of his student, who I was just impressed that he had taken all his students on a bus and they drove from Florida to New York for a convention. I got, I still have a notebook of every student that was on that bus because I took every email down and I had connected with Will and he told me about his book and it was something I ordered and just, I read it on my porch every day after that jumpy the frog thing. And I just, again, I got a little bit more scientific. It wasn't just playback sounds. It wasn't just the time in the loops. It was more, how does game work? How does compression work? How do you make it happen in, in, in any sort of programming environment? So designing audio effects and plugins in C++ 
was something that I was able to understand without any high level audio knowledge. Just sometimes you have to read it two or three times before you really feel like you got it. I was going to say that we didn't even get to, to talk about this, but the VR thing was something that was really exciting. Taking the, the soundtrack and just, again, just experimenting with different technologies. I used the studio project to just experiment with different platforms. And the, v, and the virtual reality thing was just something that naturally came. And it was also just an exciting thing. So that kind of also created some unique opportunities. Point is, experiment a little bit, even if I think every company has some sort of R&D. So in yourself, you should have some sort of R&D. You should be ready for some sort of revolutionary tech or something that could radically change the way that you work. Awesome. Well, Sam, where is the best place for people to follow your work? The best place for people to follow my work would be at audiofusion.com. That's actually the where I'll be posting a lot of the, the projects that I've been working on in audio over the next few months. Uh, there's obviously the Soundcheck Pro, there's Virtual Studio, but there's a couple, a number of other projects that I've been wanting to, to share. On a personal note, you could drop me a line. I could make my email available. It's szfpro at gmail.com. It's easy email to Great. remember, but a lot of the work, I'm very focused on Audio Fusion and Soundcheck Pro, so keep an eye on those, on, on those projects. Awesome. Well, Sam Fisher, thank you so much for joining us on Sound Design Live. Thank you, Nathan, and I hope everybody enjoyed. Sound Design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It features music by Eugenio Menini. You can find more at soundcloud.com slash gg-47. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Joel, Sinqui, Bob, Pedro, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, Ross, Voyager Sound, John, Dave, DC Sound Op, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, and Terry. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. <laughs>